Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of Crossroads Church in Sandy, Utah. Join us as we listen to a sermon from a recent Sunday morning service. It's glorious to sing with you, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Exodus again, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, we are in the Ten Commandments, what the Bible calls the Ten Words, this law of God that reflects God's righteous moral character, our God who is unchanging, who is righteous in all he does, who is righteous in his being. And he gave this law to Israel as his covenant people so that they would reflect his glory, so that they would live in a world that pointed others to what God is like, a God who gives good commands, a God who needs nothing and so summons people not to steal, but to love their neighbors. This is the kind of God who reveals himself in his law. And we come to the eighth commandment, which is found in verse 15. Another short but powerful word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. So let's ask the Lord's help to understand his law and to be doers of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious father. You give your commands not to restrict or inhibit our flourishing as humans, but you give your law to maximize and to promote our flourishing as humans. I pray that you would help us to hear your word this morning and to be doers of the word. Lord, you have given us your spirit so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And I pray that we would indeed walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Help us to become who you have already made us to be in Christ and help us to be so conformed to his image that we would demonstrate and exude love towards our brothers and sisters and not selfishness, not greed, but generosity and integrity and honesty for your glory and so that our lives would adorn the gospel that we preach. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Do you lock your doors before you go to bed? My guess is that most of you, if not all of you, do lock your doors. I know I do. I have my nightly routine where I walk through the house and I check all the doors and I make sure that each one is locked and the garage door is closed before I lie down and sleep. I do it every single night. Every time I get out of my car, after I park in a public space, I lock the door. It's just like autopilot. I never forget, I always lock the door. I push that little button until I hear the beep on the vehicle. Maybe you know what it's like if you're like me in some of those instances where you've parked somewhere and then you can't remember if you locked the car and you experience that split second of anxiety thinking, oh my gosh, did I lock the car? 
Why am I so concerned about locking my car? Why are we so concerned about locking our doors at night? Well, maybe on the one hand, we can get a little too worried about it because we live in a time and in an age where we hear every horror story on the news and so we can become a little obsessive. But I think we're conscious of locking our homes and our vehicles because we know we live in a world of thieves. Over a year ago now, my family decided to take a cross-country trip and we decided to fly out of Las Vegas because the tickets were so much cheaper. So we made this trek to Las Vegas and we stayed in a hotel one night and the hotel agreed to let us park our vehicle on their property while we were away. Now I can't remember if it was the person at the front desk or a sign in the parking lot that said something to the effect that the hotel is not responsible for any damage or stolen items or whatever it was to your vehicle while it is here. Well, I parked the vehicle and I thought, surely nothing is going to happen to our most attractive minivan. So we parked the vehicle and sure enough, within a couple of nights of being gone, I get a call from the Las Vegas Police Department that the rear window of our van has been smashed out. Now, interestingly, the van was not stolen and neither was anything in the van stolen. My theory is that once they smashed out the rear window, they caught such a awful smell or saw how dirty this vehicle was having just had a family of eight that they said, let's leave it alone. But that vandalism was a form of theft because I had to pay a lot of money to get that window fixed and I received no restitution. We lock our doors because we know theft is all too common in a fallen world. The Eighth Commandment is really quite simple. You shall not steal. And like the others, this commandment teaches us about the righteous character of God. It teaches us what the posture of our hearts should be towards our neighbors. And it points us again to the hope of the gospel. So what does the Eighth Commandment mean? Well, in some ways, the answer is obvious. You shall not steal means you shall not take something that belongs to someone else. So it assumes that people have some level of personal ownership over their things. And it is immoral and sinful to take something that belongs to someone else. We know this intuitively through the law of conscience. You really don't have to persuade people that stealing is wrong. In fact, if you're ever in a conversation with an atheist or someone who denies objective moral standards, you can simply ask them what they would do if somebody broke into their vehicle and stole their car. I can guarantee you they would say, well, I'm going to call the police. Why? Because they know through law of conscience that stealing is objectively wrong. But even though we know stealing is wrong, we come out of the womb as little thieves. 
What is one of the first words that children learn? Mine. Spoken like a true parent. Mine. And somehow those little children come to believe that everything they want is mine. So I will just take whatever and I will claim it as my own. Human beings are little kleptomaniacs from birth because they are born in Adam. What was Adam's sin in the garden? Well, Adam violated really all 10 of the commandments, but Adam was given a command and told, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Look, I've given you this bounty to enjoy, but there is one tree that you are not to eat from. It belongs to God alone. And what did Adam do and his wife? They stole from God. They took from the tree that was forbidden. And all of Adam's progeny are now guilty in Adam and sinful by nature, a stealing people. We find that we live in a fallen world full of thieves. Stealing happens all the time, all over the world, in so many ways. Philip Ryken lists many examples in his commentary on Exodus. Governments that increase national debt with no plan to pay it off are stealing from future generations. The citizens of a state that are not entirely honest on their tax documents are stealing from the government. The employer who pays his salary, pays the salary of his employee that is not sufficient for the job that he does is stealing from his employee. The employee who chooses to surf the internet and spend time on social media when he has other projects to do is stealing from his company's productivity. Idleness is a form of theft. Racking up credit card debt with no ability to pay it off. Plagiarism is a form of intellectual theft that steals someone else's ideas and claims them as your own. False advertising and deceptive marketing. But what about slander? Slander is more directly a violation of the ninth commandment, but it also is a form of stealing. Somebody has spent their whole life establishing a good reputation, and slander robs them of that. Vandalism that ruins another's property at the expense of the owner is stealing. Stealing overlaps with the other commandments. Murder steals life. Adultery steals what belongs to another man or woman. Idolatry gives the worship that belongs to God alone to a worthless idol. Violation of the Eighth Commandment is everywhere in our world. Even your Amazon boxes are not safe on your porch. Philip Ryken again quotes from Martin Luther. Here's what Ryken says. Martin Luther said, If we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. He also speculated what would happen if we were all brought to justice. It is the smallest part of thieves that are hung, he said. 
If we were to hang them all, where shall we get rope enough? We must make all our belts and straps into halters. The reason theft is a common occurrence in our world is because people are estranged from God. They don't know him as a loving father who generously provides for his people. And so in sin, they turn inward. They turn selfish, materialistic, and idolatrous. So here, God gives his law to Israel, this people whom he has redeemed to be in a relationship with him and tells them, you shall not steal. Positively, we could say, you shall be generous. So how is this command spelled out in the Torah, the law of God? Let me give you some examples. First, the law forbid man-stealing. I know that sounds kind of funny, man-stealing. But listen to Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So the point is, don't prey on the weak. Don't enslave someone. Don't coerce someone. Don't manipulate someone else. Right? This, again, is the employer who takes advantage of someone's desperation by hiring him to work a job, but then paying him less than sufficient wages because he can get away with it. Don't man-steal. Second, the people of Israel were to be good stewards of their neighbor's property. Exodus 22 spells this out. Listen to verse 14. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. So modern day application, if you're house sitting for someone and their cat or dog dies on your watch, you bear some of the responsibility for that. I've already told you how I almost lost a very expensive puppy that belonged to a couple of lawyers in Louisville, Kentucky. And thankfully, I was able to get that puppy back or I'd still be in indentured servitude to this day. To not steal thirdly meant positively be the type of person that is willing to incur financial loss to promote the well-being of someone else. I think this is an application of Deuteronomy 22. Listen to verses 1 and 2. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you, and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. It's again, it's about love of neighbor. You see your neighbor's goods, their animals wandering around. Go get those animals and bring them back. And if you don't know who it is, care for those animals at your own expense in hopes that you will find whom they belong to. They were to do this type of thing in Israel, even for their enemies. According to Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, if a man found his enemy's donkey, he was to return that donkey to his enemy. And if a man found his enemy's donkey under a burden and in distress, he was to rescue the donkey and return it to his enemy. It sounds like another way of saying what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You shall love your 
enemies. This is not the normal mode of operation for most people in our world. Think about this. If somebody were to get fired from their job, they were to get fired from their job for unjust reasons and maybe accused by their boss of things that they were, never did. And that person were to leave his place of employment and go outside and it starts raining like you've never seen before. And he notices that his boss's car windows are unrolled. Now, what is that person going to do? He's going to think, serves him right. <laughs> Justice. Right? Well, God is here saying in his law, be the type of person that would call up your boss, this enemy, and say, hey, I want you to know your car windows are unrolled. That's radical. That's a different way of being human in the world. The Eighth Commandment means we're to care about people and their well-being, even if there are enemies. Fourth, the Eighth Commandment requires just weights and measures in the marketplace. Listen to Leviticus 19, 35 and 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment. In measures of length or weight or quantity, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. Manipulating the scales to make a few extra bucks is a form of stealing. False advertising is a form of stealing. Deceptive marketing is a form of stealing. Have you ever noticed how chip bags these days are just like blown up with air like a balloon? And you're like, wow, what a great deal. That's on sale. And then you open it up and there's like three chips in there. It's false advertising. Have just weights and measures. If you sell something on KSL or Facebook Marketplace, be honest in your description. If the product is nasty, tell people it's nasty. I have bought products before thinking they were good, only to discover later that they were quite nasty. We should be more concerned about the well-being of others and blessing them than financial prosperity, integrity. It also means we should be mindful about expecting our friends and brothers and sisters to do skilled labor for a fraction of the cost just because they're our friend or brother or sister. Now, sometimes as Christians and as friends, we will volunteer our time and we will want to do things to bless others for free. But that is very different than expecting to pay them a lower wage for the work they do just because of your friendship. The labor is worthy of his wages and we should be inclined to pay their wages. Fifth, the people of Israel were not allowed to charge interest on their loans. Listen to Leviticus 25, verses 35 through 38. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. Don't take advantage of your brother's plight and don't disregard his dire condition. Be generous toward him. Care for him. Don't charge him interest. Help him get back on his feet, not at his expense, but at your expense. This is the law of love, of sacrifice, of generosity. 
That's what the Eighth Commandment is about. God was even concerned that the people's hearts were in the right places. Listen to Deuteronomy 15.10. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. I mean, you could just see it, right? Oh man, this pathetic guy. I've got to keep providing for him and taking him in and caring for him. He needs to pull his own weight. God says, don't be begrudging in your generosity. Sixth, the people of Israel were to manifest a generous spirit in the way they harvested their grain and their vineyards. So according to Leviticus 19.9, the people were not to harvest the fields right up to the edge. They were to leave the edges unharvested. And if they dropped produce while harvesting, they were to leave it on the ground. That sounds so foreign to us Americans who want to maximize profits. Why in the world would God tell them, don't harvest the edge of your fields and leave produce on the ground? It sounds wasteful. Well, the point was so that the poor and the sojourners among them could come and take what was dropped and what was left. It's not about maximizing your profits. It's about trusting God to provide for you and you being generous towards others. So here's my summary statement about the meaning of the Eighth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment requires that we have a rightly ordered relationship with God so that we are set free to rest in God's providential care, steward the resources God has given us, and live with glad-hearted generosity towards others in all of life. Let me read that one more time. The Eighth Commandment requires that we have a rightly ordered relationship with God so that we are free to rest in God's providential care, steward the resources God has given us, and live with glad-hearted generosity towards others in all of life. So turn to Ephesians 4 for a moment. We'll spend the rest of our time in Ephesians 4. Moving from an old covenant text to a new covenant text text. In Ephesians 4, verse 25, really through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul strings together all these ethical imperatives. Here's how you are to live. Here's how you are to live. Here's how you are supposed to conduct yourself. And I'll pick up in verse 25 of chapter 4, but verse 28 is where I'm driving. So Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So there's the Eighth Commandment, and it's repeated for the New Covenant Church. Let the thief no longer steal. Well, why not? Well, because it's wrong. Well, we know stealing is wrong. 
And honestly, many thieves know stealing is wrong, but they keep doing it. The question I'm asking is why the thief is to no longer steal in the context of Ephesians 4. Well, back up to verse 17. Remember, the ethical imperatives are always grounded in gospel indicatives. So back up to verse 17. Now this I say to you, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Why is the thief to no longer steal? Well, because in this context, he has been made new. He has been renewed He has put on Christ and has been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God makes us new by his grace through the gospel and the work of regeneration and the indwelling of the spirit and enables us to become who we already are. That's the logic of New Testament imperatives. Become who you already are. In Christ, you have been made new. You have been conformed to the image of Christ. You have been filled with his spirit. You are indeed a new creation. But in this time in which we live before the resurrection of the body, we still must put off the old man. The old man who turns inward, who is selfish, who doesn't trust God's providential care and clamors. For stuff. But the thief is to no longer steal. Well, great, I'm not stealing. But that's not all Paul says in verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. No more stealing, but work hard. Why? So that you can accumulate as much wealth as possible. No, that's not what it says. What he says is labor so that you can have more stuff than your neighbor. Oh, no, that's not what he says either. No, work hard so you can share with others. Generosity. You see, one positive application of the Eighth Commandment is glad-hearted giving. 
It's not just that we don't take other people's stuff. It's that we gladly give away our own resources. And that's radical. But that kind of mindset requires a rightly ordered relationship with God. It means we trust God's providence and his fatherly care for our lives. Remember, all these commands are to teach us about God's gracious character. What kind of God gives a command like you shall not steal? Here's how one author has answered that question. He first asks the same question. What kind of amazing person would say to us, you shall not steal? Only a just and generous person who can be fully trusted, who would never rob us or defraud us, who would never lie or cheat, who would never hold out on us wrongly, who is not out for himself, who feels no need and no appetite, but only overflowing kindness and abundance. We have to know God like that. And apart from the new birth, we don't view God this way. In our natural condition, we are estranged from God. We don't trust God. We know him as judge, but not as a father abounding in generosity. Remember the lie of the serpent when he came to Eve? Did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Crafty. You know why? Because God never said that. God said you shall not eat from one tree. He didn't say you shall not eat from any tree. But here the serpent is trying to plant that seed of doubt. God is not for you. He restricts. He holds back. Now Eve actually gets it right and corrects him and says, well, God said we could eat from the trees in the garden. He just said we shall not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden. For in the day we eat, we will die. And then Satan capitalizes and says what? You will surely not die. But if you eat from this tree, you will be like God. What is the lie there? Well, it's working at many levels, but he's telling the woman, God does not love you. He is withholding something that is actually for your good. Don't trust him. You would be better off without him. Take for yourself what is pleasing to the eye. And you see, in our fallen condition, this is the way we view God. He's holding back. He can't be trusted. So we turn inward. I need stuff. I need to hoard. I need to look out for number one. How can we be free to no longer live as a thief, but with generous, glad-hearted generosity? The answer is to be reconciled to God. The answer 
is the gospel. That through Christ, we are restored, we are reconciled, we are forgiven, and we come to know God, not just as judge, but as Father, whose love has been poured out in our hearts so that we trust him, that he will provide for us all that we need and has indeed given us everything in Christ. And I'm free to give. Jesus instructed us about possessions, about living in this world, about faith in God's provision in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Do you believe that? Or do you just kind of buy into just natural processes? God is sovereign over making sure the birds have their food. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, the antidote to a selfish, thieving heart is to know God as Father, to trust his providential care for his children. We trust God with our eternal soul, and yet we get worried about our daily bread. We know he is for us, and we, he will provide for us. And he's displayed it supremely in the gospel. Because the eternal Son of God left the glories of heaven to become a man and to live as a bondservant. To the point, even in his life, where he had no place to lay his head. What you will never find in the gospels is Jesus caring more about stuff than our well-being. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. And he taught us that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And of course, his supreme act of self-giving, he gave his own life on a cross where he was crucified between two thieves. Remember, Jesus' death is a vicarious death. And so it was, in a sense, entirely appropriate and legitimate for him to die as a thief and a criminal. Not because he had ever sinned, but because our sins were imputed to him. So he dies crucified as a criminal between two thieves, giving his own life so that we would be forgiven 
justified, reconciled to God, filled with his spirit, and changed from the inside out. That is the power to keep the law, to live with glad-hearted generosity towards others. It's faith in the one who became poor so that we might become rich in him. And by his grace, he has set us free to be remade in his image and likeness so that we would work hard, ready to share with those in need. I'm thankful for a generous church, for a generous people that encourages me in this pursuit. And we should remember the words of our Lord as we contemplate the Eighth Commandment. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let's remember that as we wait our eternal inheritance. And it is a big inheritance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to live with glad-hearted generosity towards our brothers and sisters, and indeed, even towards our enemies, that we would be the type of new humanity that you have created us to be in Christ, different from the world, living for things different than the world, ready to share with those in need. Lord, I pray that no one at Crossroads Church would ever be in want, and that, like the Macedonians, whose poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity, that that same spirit would be manifest in us with our time, with our resources, and with the gifts that you have given us, ready to serve one another as a reflection of your most loving character and enabled by the spirit that has been poured out in our hearts. The very spirit of the one who became poor so that we might become rich. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We trust God will use this sermon in your life. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like more information about Crossroads, email us at info at crossroadschurchutah.org. That's info at crossroadschurchutah.org.